Um, and in the middle of this incredible story of Jesus and the woman at the well, and it is an incredible story, and it is a story that has so many implications for us as we talk about how Jesus loves people, how Jesus specifically loves people that are by society standards deemed unlovable, and um, this is a woman who is avoiding contact with other people, and people are avoiding contact with her because she has a messy story. And, um, and for some other reasons, uh, you know, her and Jesus shouldn't be having a conversation, and yet Jesus goes to her. So there are so many implications that we can just set in and dwell on and rejoice in and be changed and transformed and challenged by through this text. But in the middle of it, she brings up a question about, like, worship. She brings up a question about some really, like, tangible things that are hotly debated in this day. And so if you know the story, Jesus calls her out. He offers her living water, offers her salvation. She's like, yeah, sounds great. Jesus goes, okay, cool, go get your husband. And she's like, uh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, you're right. You've had five, and the one that you have now is not your husband. So Jesus reads her mail to her and confronts her. And then she asks this question. She goes, she goes okay, well, I could see that you're a prophet, so tell me about this. Our parents, or our fathers, our, our forefathers here at Samaria, they say we should worship on this hill. So they're at Jacob's well. That well's right at the base of, of Mount, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had set up their base of worship. So she's probably pointing, saying, our fathers say we should worship there. Your tradition says we should worship in Jerusalem. Which is it? Now, why does she bring that up? Many commentators, many people would say she's just trying to kind of divert attention away from her Exposure, uh, Jesus has gotten close to a wound, right? Actually, he's gone right into it. And so she's going, oh, let's talk about something less personal. Why, why, don't you, why don't you clear this one up for us? Maybe that's it. Maybe there's part of that. Or maybe this is her way of just kind of saying, um, hey, I know some religious stuff, right? Uh, it's kind of diverting, diverting that attention by saying, hey, you know, I'm not a complete heathen. I, I know some things. I don't know if this happens to y'all, but because... I'm a pastor, and I don't know if you know this, I'm not the most traditional pastor. Like, I don't even wear a suit up here, so I certainly don't look like a pastor out and about. And so this fun thing happens to me sometimes is I'm meeting people, hanging out with friends. Meeting friends' friends is one of my favorites because we're at a group, you know, functioning. I'm meeting friends' friends, and they introduce me, and we hang out for a while and interact with one another. And then later they ask me, so Jordan, what do you do? And I tell them, I'm a pastor. And, they're, and you could see this like, how many cuss words have I said? I've got a beer in my hand, and this guy's a pastor. You can see it like all processing, and it's kind of amusing for me. And they start, and sometimes they'll be like, oh, well, I apologize. Or, or sometimes they will start to tell me some things that they know about church. They'll start to say, oh, well, my grandpa was a pastor. Oh, I, I go to this church. Or, oh, what about, the, or they will sometimes ask me a question. Well, what, do you, what does your church think about this, right? And I think some of that is, is them saying like, hey, uh, clearly I'm not a pastor like you, but yeah, I mean, I got some exposure to religion. And I think there's some of that for her where she's saying, oh, okay, clearly this guy knows his stuff. Let me, let me make sure that he knows that I'm not completely ignorant of religious things. Regardless of why, the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't dismiss the question. Even if she is trying to distract, he doesn't just dismiss it and go, yeah, yeah, nice try. We're still going to talk about your sin. No, he answers it. He validates it and engages it, and he answers her. And his answer has deep implications that matter to us today. 
And so we're going to look closely at this part of the story today. Let's read uh, verses 19 through 26, and then we'll pray, and then we'll just settle into this part of the story for a little while today. So in verse 19, I've set up some of the story for you. Um, Jesus has confronted her about her husband's. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is indeed now here when true when the True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word in general that you have given us revelation that allows us to know you, to not be searching in the dark and wondering how we can find eternal life, but rather we have a clear revelation that is your word. So we thank you for it, and we thank you for this particular passage. We pray that it would be formative for us, um, that it would be transformative for us, and that we would leave here um, full of hearts that lead um, full of full um, with your truth in our heart that leads to a life of worship in spirit and in truth. So, Jesus, we invite you in. It's in your name we pray. So the question that she asks is about worship. And our, and our initial instinct when we hear the word worship is to think about music, right? It's to think about the singing portion of the service. Um, and, and that's actually really not what the Bible is referring to anywhere that it says the word worship. Um, it talks about singing, it talks about the importance of singing, and it talks about doing that when we gather, but when, it, when the Bible uses the word worship, nowhere is it translated uh, something that is talking about really the, the gathering in general, right? It's actually not even talking about the worship gathering and the corporate gathering of people, um, but it's certainly not just uh, the music portion um, alone. And so um, it is a part of it that we should sing. Right? It's absolutely a part of worship. It's a part of following Jesus. It's a part of being his people, but it's, it's, uh, it's far more. So it's not less than worship. It's not, that, it's not less than praise. It's not less than songs, but it, it's far more than that. Um, all of life is actually worship. Consider with me Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That idea of sacrifice is what you would bring when you would come to the temple for worship. What am I offering to God? Paul says, bring your bodies, bring your, your life, your whole life, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. So he doesn't say, hey, as long, you know, live how you want through the week. As long as you come and sing, you're good. No, no, he says, bring your, your bodies, bring your life. That's your spiritual worship. Hebrews 13, uh, verses 15 through 16 says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So that's absolutely affirming that part of our praise, part of our worship is when we, with our mouths, declare the truths about God. That, that's absolutely a part of it. But the very next verse says, says to, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. That's your life. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So absolutely gather, sing. Let, let your praise be known by opening your mouth, 
joining in song, joining in, in uh, reading, you know, affirming truths together, absolutely. But don't stop there. Like, let, let it spill over into your life so much so that it, it affects how you live, what you do, the good that you, that you do, the, the, the way that you share your life. These are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Um, so what we're getting at is we can't just say it with our mouth and, and think that that's worship. In fact, Jesus will say in Matthew 15 that just saying it with your mouth isn't worship at all. Matthew 15, 8 through 9. So, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah, I believe, but he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So he's saying, you, people are gathering and they think that they're worshiping because they're singing the songs, they're, they're saying the right things, they're saying amen, but when their hearts are far from me, when it hasn't affected the rest of their being, it's not actually worship at all. He said it equals zero. It's, it's purely vanity. So it is not less than singing, but it is for sure more. But uh, because... The, the gathering is so central to being the people of God, right? And it is. It was in the Old Testament. Jesus is going to change things and for the better. But even then, it was, it was central to come to the, to the temple to be a gathering. It's still important. Hebrews warns us, hey, don't stop gathering together and coming together for church as some in their habit of doing. That's, that's a bad idea. That will lead to hard hearts that lead to sin. So it is absolutely central to our, our faith that we gather together and that we sing and that we preach. And, and so that's, that's true. And we're not going to take that away. We're not going to minimize that. And because that's true, this ends up being a hotly debated topic. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if you knew that people will fight about how church should be done. Even what I joked about earlier about how I dress, I've literally been told that I wasn't a real preacher because somebody was referring to somebody who was a real preacher, and the identifying factor in that was that they wore a suit, and I was right there at the table, and I was like, all right, message received, how you feel about me. Um, but there are plenty of these debates, right? Instruments or no instruments? Some churches have that debate. Other churches, what types of instruments, right? I was watching some show the other day and some you know, really conservative Southern woman was like, well, if you do that, next thing you know, you'll have a guitar in church, right? And there's that, that like, that's of the devil, right? Never mind the passages that tell us to praise God with a lyre, which is an Old Testament guitar, you know, stringed instrument and, and drums and, you know, all these things and horns, but that's not, well, I'll digress. That's not our point today, but there's those debates. Hymnals versus screens. Y'all remember? Anybody fight about these things coming into your church? The devil, Right? Devil rode in on a screen. Whether you should be singing hymns or contemporary songs. Right? So, and, and then there's just a few of these things. But people will debate about how church should be done, how worship in the corporate sense should be done. So her question is about location, but his answer speaks to all of these debates about worship issues in her day and in ours. So we're going to look at it. We're going to see what he says and let it sort out some things for us in our time, in our context, and then we're going to circle back at the end with the reality, the reminder that all of life is worship, not just the singing time. So what does he say? What is, her, what is his answer to her question about, okay, we're supposed to worship over there, we're supposed to worship over here? Again, there's, that, there's history there. We've walked through that in previous uh, passages. There's, there's ethnic, you know, political divisions there. There's a lot going on there. But nonetheless, the debate is about location. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Okay, so his answer 
uh, in summary, is, is not as much about settling the debate, but rather that the point of the temple worship, which is the center of their debate, is about to be realized. Jesus is saying, hey, the whole idea of gathering at the temple was actually just to lead us to something better, and that something better is here. And the temple worship is about to be transcended and, and replaced in a way that will make arguments from both sides, Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem, obsolete. Okay? There is about to be something far better. And that's what Jesus is, is going to lead her to. He's saying it's, it's actually not so much about that, or it's not going to be so much about that. He's going to say that matters, and we'll get to that. But he's saying something far better is that what God is doing, the movement that he's been leading to up to this point, is that a people that would be able to worship in spirit and in truth. That is what God is doing. So her question's about location, and it matters, but Jesus is saying it's about spirit and in truth. So let's look at that a little bit deeper. What does he mean when he says spirit and in truth? He says... You worship what we don't know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what does this mean on spirit and truth? There's a lot of different takes on it. There's a lot of implications that have been made the same point. We're, we're going to end with some of those applications, but we want to see what is Jesus saying in this moment um, what is he talking about when he says we should worship in spirit and truth? Again, her question is about location, and that location matters, and that's actually what the spirit part is going to address because uh, Jesus isn't, like we're going to see in the truth portion, he doesn't say that it doesn't matter. He says it actually does matter, but it's going to be obsolete because something better is coming. The location has mattered because God has had to set up certain parameters and ways to interact with his people that, are, that involve the temple. But the temple and that sort of worship is actually not a result of God's grand initial original plan, but rather an accommodation that comes because of our sin. You see, there was no temple in the garden. We looked at this earlier in John. That initially, God made his world to be a place where his image bearers, humans, were in constant communion and fellowship with him. So there was no temple. There was an all-indwelling presence and relationship where God's presence wasn't confined to a particular place, but rather all over and particularly, most importantly, with his people. The temple comes later as a result of our sin that fractures that connection and no longer allows God to be you know, ever present and indwelling and, and you know, fellowshipping with his people because of our sin. And so as, as the movement of God goes throughout the Old Testament, he's setting, uh, he's, he's restoring what was lost in Genesis 3, or in Genesis, yeah, it was lost in Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2 was this fellowship. And, and He's restoring what is lost as he moves through all of the history with the Jews. He's trying to get back to this, this beautiful reality, this beautiful truth of him being with his people. So the temple exists because sin exists. And Jesus has come. We've already seen. He comes and, and cleans, cleanses out the temple. And in that story from um, earlier in, in the John's gospel, he says, 
The old, is, the old is, is passing away. The new has come. I'm here with a new and better. You can tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. He's saying, I'm the new and the better temple. And so Jesus has come to restore what was lost. And what was lost primarily at the center of what was lost when we sin is our connection, our fellowship, our intimacy with God. So verse 21 through 23, Jesus is talking about that being restored. He's saying the reason it's going to be obsolete about this mountain or that mountain is because this, like Jesus' arrival is signifying the end of the concentrated and limited presence of God in a temple, right? Because the sin barrier is what has, you know, the sin issue is what made God have to be, you know, concentrated to one place in the temple. And he says, you can come to me. And only certain people are allowed to come into the very presence of me after a very extensive ritual and a very extensive process of confessing and cleansing themselves. And they can, those high priests can offer you know, atonement and sacrifices on behalf of everyone, but you can come to the temple. His, his presence is contained there. And this is good and right. This is how he has set it up to be. But Jesus is saying... Something better has come along. I, I'm here to shift that now. The end of that era has arrived when Jesus comes. This is why Jesus, it says that he came and tabernacled with them, that he came and dwelled with them. This is why his name is what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God is now outside of the temple and with us. No longer concentrated and limited in a physical place. Jesus is inaugurating a new age in which people won't have to travel to a physical temple in one city to worship, but will be able to worship God in every place because the Holy Spirit will dwell in them. Instead of just in the temple, it will dwell in them. And therefore, God's people everywhere will become the new temple where God dwells. Okay, all this is connected in John. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God who's come to dwell with us. He's tabernacling with us, dwelling, being with us. He has come to, to be the new and, and better temple. And he's come to bring the spirit. To, okay, so his spirit was limited to the, the temple presence. Now it's going to be what? Turned loose to be present in his people. We now become the new temple. This is a fulfillment of what we looked at Ezekiel chapter 36 long ago. The, the prophet was saying, hey, this is what's going to come. I, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says, I will give my people a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That in Ezekiel, hundreds of years before this moment when Jesus is having this conversation with a Samaritan woman, is what Jesus is saying is now coming to pass. He's saying, God has promised to do something far better than just make the worship at the temple better and more formal and rightly divided. No, he's going to transcend that. And instead of the temple, he's going to be able to put his spirit inside of us. Why? Because, remember, sin was the reason he had to be contained into a temple in the first place. 
once sin has been dealt with through the blood of Jesus Christ, when Jesus said, it is finished, when he's on the cross, that's what he's talking about. The sin problem is, is dealt with. For those that would come and receive Jesus, it is done. You no longer have to strive and, and, and get to a place or get to a, a certain level of morality. No, no, it is finished. The work of salvation is done. And Jesus says, now... You come to me to meet with God. See, this location issue mattered because really what they were asking, the reason the woman is asking the question is, hey, where do we go to meet with God? You're a prophet. We want to know. Are we wrong? Are the Samaritans wrong to try to meet with God here? Because if so, I want to know. Or are the Jews wrong to meet with God there? We want to know, where do we meet with God? Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to be a time coming when you won't have to go to a physical building to meet with God, but rather where you go is to his spirit. Where you go is actually to his son. Where you go is to the cross. Because it is there that Jesus finished the work. It is there that when Jesus cries out, it is finished, that the world begins to rumble and the earth shake and it goes dark. And, and what they find is that the temple, the, the holy of holies where God's presence used to dwell is now split. That curtain that separated sinners from the presence of God is split from the top to bottom, signifying that now God is able to dwell with his people once again. And so 1 Corinthians, uh, Ephesians 2 talks about we are now the temple. We are now where God dwells. So we don't go to a physical place. We don't have to um, pilgrimage to Mecca or to some other place to, to meet with God. Instead, he has come to us. Verse 24 says, God is spirit and those who, who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is talking about the meeting place. God is spirit means that God is not made of any physical matter alone. Like he does not have this material body that limits his physical presence. Rather, he has this wonderful, like, greater than existence that is everywhere present. That's the reason that worship isn't confined to one place anymore. It wasn't confined to one place because of God's limitations. It was confined because of sin. Sin has been dealt with, and now those who are born again are brought into the presence of God, brought into the name of Jesus. Positionally, now we are in Jesus. We're not in our own sin. We're not in our own righteousness. We're not standing in our own accord when God looks at us and can we get in, can we not? Can we be in his presence, can we not? He's not looking at our record, rather he's looking in Jesus's record. And we stand, that's why we pray in his name. You can't pray in your name. You don't have rights in heaven in your name alone. But when you are in Jesus, you get to pray in his name. You're on his tab. You're on his bill. You're on his reputation. And you can walk right up to the throne of God and ask for what you need because of what Jesus has done. So this is going to change everything about how we worship. And so um, <clears throat> what he says when we're going to worship in spirit and in truth, this idea of spirit goes back to really the conversation he had with Nicodemus where he said, listen, you got to be born again. Your credibility, uh, your, your righteousness based on your church attendance, all that, it, it's not worth anything. You have to be born again. And he says, and if you just flip over one page, John chapter 3, verse 6, says that <clears throat> that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So those who are born again, we are born into the realm of the spirit, and therefore we will worship in that same realm. A few weeks ago, we talked about that. Being born of the Spirit is, is being something 
new and, and, and greater than is awakened in us. Scales fall off. We're able to see the world through a spiritual lens. We're able to see the truths of, of Jesus, the truths of Scripture, and it transforms us. As Ezekiel said, it's no longer the law is out here and I'm trying to obey it so that I can get in there. Rather, the law is placed inside of us and we are caused and, 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 and given the spirit within us that wants, wants to live by God's law, wants to be transformed. And that is what it means to be born of the spirit. So true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the only way that we get into the spirit is through new birth. John will say later in chapter 6, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and in life. We're born, what's born of the spirit is spirit. It is the presence of the spirit causing new birth, causing us to be born again that enables us to actually worship. So without the spirit, there can be no true worship. So in essence, the this is kind of a commentary on what Nicodemus was, was having this conversation with Jesus. It's not about church attendance. It's not about learning, doing good deeds that get you into the presence of God. It's no journey or pilgrimage to a specific place, only new birth. The Spirit is the way that we connect to God. It's no longer about where. It's about how, and that how is through the Spirit. No new birth, no Spirit. No Spirit. No worship. Okay, this is what Jesus is saying. So spirit, kind of answering the where and the how question. It's no longer about this location. Rather, it's about uh, uh, internal location. Where are you? Where is your identity? Where is your position before the Lord? Is it in deeds and religion or is it in Jesus? Is it in the spirit? He says we should worship in spirit and in truth. So let's look at the truth piece. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't say to her, you know what, it's no big deal. You guys worship over there. We worship over here. What really matters is that you're worshiping. He doesn't say that, does he? And some people want to use this passage kind of in that way to say, see, Jesus, you know, he's, he's going after these people that are far from the Lord. He's going after these people that are sinful, and he's not judging her, and, and, and he's not talking about all this truth. Just, it's just the God of love. But no, you've you got to look deeper because Jesus doesn't just wave his hand and say, no big deal. As long as you're worshiping, we're all worshiping the same God. We'll all up in the same place. This is not what he says. Why? Because that's universalism. Jesus is absolutely an exclusive way. He will say later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in fact, he's affirming that here in this passage. He goes, verse 22, um, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So yes, it's about to be transcended. It's about to be an argument that no longer needs to be had, but it absolutely matters. Jesus basically calls her an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who says, well, I believe there is a God, but I don't think it's a God we can know. I don't think it's a God that we can have a relationship with, but there's, there's a force out there, right? Jesus is saying, you're worshiping what you don't know. You're, you're worshiping. You're, you've got some rituals. You've got a process, but you don't know what you're worshiping or who you're worshiping. He goes, it matters because there's only one way to salvation. And that's through the God who makes the way to salvation. And that salvation, he says, comes from the Jews. This is Jesus saying, no, it matters. And it matters a lot. Truth matters. 
Okay, so he does not bring some universalism like, oh, you know what, it's, it's all good, we're all headed to the same place. No, he's saying it matters. You worship in ignorance, we worship from knowledge, and this matters. Jesus is, again, taking this universal longing of this woman that has manifested itself in marriage after marriage after marriage and looking deeper inside and saying, you have a need, you have a thirst that cannot be quenched of things of this world. Now we shifted the conversation to worship. Author David Foster Wallace says that all humans are worshiping. There's no such thing as not worshiping, he says. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what do we worship, right? This is why truth matters. Uh, if, if you're familiar with the story in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is, is interacting with the culture, and he's seeing all of these, these plural, you know, these polytheistic, um, you know, people, and, and they're, they're They've got these ways of trying to connect with spirituality and transcend their, their, their immortality. And, and, he's, and he's looking at what they've got. And they've got this one, like, you know, thing set up, this little idol, this little statue. And they're like, this one's to the unknown God. We, anything we can name that we think might matter, we've got a little altar set up to them. We've tried to cover it. But in case we forgot something, in case we forgot someone, we want, okay, that one was for you, Right? And, and Paul looks at this, and instead of calling them ignorant, instead of just berating their stupidity, he goes, I see that you guys are searching for the truth. Let me tell you about that God that you don't know. You're trying to worship something that you don't know. Let me tell you. And then what does he tell them? He begins to unpack the story of God. He begins to unpack how God has been moving in response to humans' sin that has separated them from God and fractured the world, that God has been moving in response to that, that he has been setting up salvation. And that salvation comes through the story of the Jews. So truth about God matters because if we don't know who we're worshiping, we don't know where it has come from, then we can't truly worship R.C. Sproul says, mindless Christianity is no Christianity at, all. Christianity at all. Mindless Christianity is no Christianity at all. You can't love what you don't know. So, truth matters, and specifically, truth about God matters. When we worship, we need to have a value of knowing what is true. It's not just what we feel. It's not what, just what we want to be true. We need to have a source of truth. Truth matters. Where does truth come from? It comes from the Bible. It comes from specific revelation. This is God's word. If we don't have this, then we're at the mercy of everybody's whim and will and feeling inside. There's, it's common in our world today to say, you know what, you should speak your truth. Just pull on that thread just a little bit. You don't have to be a, a, you know, a deep thinker and you know, live in a world of philosophy to just pull on that thread a little bit. What does that mean? My truth. And you have your truth. Well, what if my truth says that your truth is a lie? I'm stealing that from Lecrae. But seriously, what if my truth says it's okay for me to slap you in the face? You're like, hey, man, why'd you do that? Well, it's my truth. 
And, and listen, I'm pulling, I'm making it simplified. I know it's far more complicated than that. But I dare you to just track that logic. It doesn't stand. It doesn't hold water. You can't get anywhere with that kind of apologetic and approach to life. You just can't. Truth matters. We have to know what is true. And the Bible is our source for that. Now, we'll, we'll provide some resources at another time to, to give you some confidence in this being God's word, but suffice it to say that if, if, if I don't believe this is true, I have nothing to stand up here and talk to you guys about. But truth about God matters. That's why Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. You can't just hope for salvation. You can't just think you're doing the right things. You need to know specifically where does our hope come from. And Jesus says it comes from the Jews. What's he talking about? The Jews, that would be affirming the Bible. That would be affirming what God has been doing in history is all outlining his work with the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So he's saying that's where salvation comes from. You have to have the word of God. Now, if you know the story, it starts with the opening, right? Genesis 1 and 2, it's really good. Genesis 3, it breaks. That's where the separation happens. That's where we're no longer able to be in fellowship with God because of our sin. By chapter 6, it's so bad God brings a flood, judges the whole earth, starts over with Noah and his family. They don't do any better. And, and we see in chapter, uh, we see some other things, but we get to chapter 12, God begins to launch a, a redemption story that is centered on the people called the Jews, the nation called Israel. And at that very moment, from the jump, when he's calling Abram, in the, in the wilderness, calling him to pack, or not in the wilderness, but calling him to pack up his family and go because he's going to give them this land. He says in Genesis chapter 12, this is what he says, and I want you to hear the global view. I want you to hear the big picture. This is about far more than Abraham and his family. I want you to hear what he says in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will, honor, or I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's going to make a family, he's going to make a nation, but through that nation, he's going to bless the whole earth. Jesus is saying, that time is here. That moment is here. When he says salvation is from the Jews, back in, in, in John chapter 4, salvation is from the Jews. And then he later, and she goes, yeah, I, I know we got a Messiah coming. He'll sort all this out. Jesus goes, no, I'm here. That moment when it shifts from being about Israel to being about the whole world to being a way of Israel's justification to being a gate for everyone who would come in the name of Jesus to be justified, that moment is here this is what Jesus is talking to. This is where history has been moving toward. When he says the hour is coming, the hour is here, this, this, this time, Jesus said to his mom in, in chapter 2, that my hour is not yet here. Um, his hour will come. This hour is centered on the cross. History has been moving toward this moment where Jesus would come and at the cross become from the line of Abram, changed his name to Abraham, all the way down. That's why lineages matter. You ever be reading the New Testament? You're like, I don't, why do I care who begat who? I can't, like, I got nothing. I read, you know, I, I read a genealogy from my quiet time and I feel really confused, not edified. You know why they matter? Because it's showing that God's promises were true. That God said, I will bless through this family. And he has blessed through this family. Jesus has come through the line of Abraham and is now a blessing to all. When he stands on that cross, 
He's making a way for anybody in the world, regardless of what their ethnicity is, regardless of what their background is, if they will come and trust in the blood of Jesus, they can be saved. And Jesus is saying, this moment is here. This is what God is after. He says, this is who God is seeking. He's seeking for himself a people that will be like this. He's not after a people who merely go through the correct rituals at at the correct location. God's not up there just really frustrated that some people are at Mount Gerizim and some people are at Jerusalem. God's up there longing to restore his people to himself. He's looking for a people that will worship him in spirit and truth. This is why mindless Christianity is no Christianity at all. If we don't know who we're worshiping, we don't know what he has done to rescue us and how we are rescued, then we can't worship. So truth about God matters. Truth about ourself also matters. The truth about ourself also matters. This is why Jesus doesn't let her just have an altar call and join the church when she says, yeah, give me this living water. This is why he says, go call your husband. Because he wants to get to the depths of her and, un- and help her understand that it doesn't just matter what we know about God. We have to also know about ourselves. This is what will lead to true worship. So too often we think of worship as this kind of sterilized experience. We talk often at the journey where we don't want to be a church that pretends. We don't want to be a church that you just come in and put your smile on and act like everything's okay and and never able to acknowledge the suffering, the struggle, the pain, the fear, the sin that's in your life. Too often that's how we look at church. It's a sterilized experience where we put on our best clothes, right, and our best smile, and we go through these motions, But you see, that's a distortion of the temple worship of the Old Testament. He doesn't, and Jesus doesn't just come to correct the temple worship. He's not here to just answer questions about whether Jordan should wear a suit when he preaches or not. He's not here to just talk about whether it's, no, he's, he's here for a far bigger purpose. He's coming to do something new and better cleansing what is old, bringing in what is pleasing, instead of spent, and, and here's how you know. Like, so this story is launching us into a pattern of stories where Jesus is going to go right at people that never found themselves at church. You see, if, if God was really just after some reform and correction amongst the temple worship, then Jesus would have came and spent his time with the people at the temple, wouldn't he? He would have spent his time with the religious people and and brought some reform, brought some correction, right? But instead, Jesus calls that out, and he calls out the religious worship of the day, and he's saying, hey, y'all are acting like everything's fine, but you're just like a cup that's washed on the outside, but on the inside is filthy as all get out. On the inside makes me gag. Yeah, you look pretty, and you can make other people think that you're better than them, but on the inside... Your need is just as filthy, is just as rotten as those that are out in the streets that you've stepped over, that you've scoffed at, that you've rejected. It says all have to be born again. Remember, Nicodemus, no one's so good that they don't need a Savior. Woman at the well, no one's so bad that they're without hope of a Savior. This is the message of the gospel. So Jesus comes, and instead of hanging out with the people in the temples and the religious people, he instead goes right toward the people who are clearly filthy and clearly in need. Jesus went to the temple, he, he, but most of the time that was in a confrontive manner. He was calling them out, correcting them, but then he would go to the people 
in the streets, the people who were marginalized by the society, the people who were forgotten about, who were written off as filthy sinners, lepers. He moves directly toward them. This woman is an example of that. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 is an example of that. The woman who ruins a religious dinner with her tears and her perfume is an example of that. And you've got the religious leaders of that day going, man, talking to Jesus' disciples, does he not know who she is? If he knew who she she was, he'd be withdrawing from her, getting away from her. Her, She's going to get him filthy. And Jesus stands up and says, y'all need to learn from her. She's the one who's worshiping in spirit and truth. He doesn't use that language, but what he says is, the, the one who is forgiven much, loves much. She realizes her need. And here at my feet, she's truly worshiping your religious nonsense where you've got your nose up at the rest of the world. That's not worshiping at all. That's what he calls vain worship. So this is the kind of people, this is the type of gospel that we're finding ourselves deeper and deeper in. And these kinds of interactions are all in view when Jesus says God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Isn't that good news? He's seeking us, not waiting for us to figure out the right formula. He has come to us. But the truth about God matters. The truth about ourselves matters as well. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we say that we don't have sin, when we come in and pretend that everything is fine, John calls us liars. He says, you're not living in the truth. We're supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. So what are we supposed to do? We have to confess not only who he is, but also who we are, that we are sinners. We rejoice This is what gets us to authentic worship when we realize, oh, we are sinners who have been forgiven. This is what leads us to weep at Jesus' feet, to cry out with a response of genuine love because we realize how we have been loved. When we realize, oh, there's a God who sees us. There's a God who sees you. He knows your story. The parts of your story that nobody else knows. Parts of your story you've never allowed to matter Jesus sees them, he knows them, and instead of withdrawing from you in disgust, he moves towards you in love. Calls out that pain in us, he names it, the mess that we've made with our lives, he names it, but he does that not to shame us, not to bring condemnation, but to bring salvation, to bring healing, to go there. To go there where we never thought anybody could go and still love us. Jesus goes there. When we realize that, that leads us to true worship from spirit and in truth. See, it is the truth that informs our worship that leads to a spiritual, emotional even response. We'll get to that in just a moment. So verse 25, Jesus says, that's me. Like she says, I know the Messiah is coming. Jesus says, yep. That's me. Religion is being transformed from ritual to relationship through Jesus' work. The exalted Christ is now the place where, where we go to meet with God. Not the temple. He is the temple. And when we are in him, we become the temple. So God the Father can't be honored unless Jesus is given all the honor that is due to him. 
The book of Hebrews talks about all the Old Testament. It's really a, um, a commentary on what Jesus says. Salvation is from the Jews. All the rituals, all the, prop, the, um, the things, the sacrifices they went through, they were all pointing and leading to Jesus. That's what the book of Hebrews explains for us. It's all about Jesus. He is the truth that we must worship in. He is the way that we are born again into the Spirit. It's all about Jesus. So in essence, Jesus is saying worship of God is going to involve our whole life, and it's going to inform both our head and our heart. Okay, some people would say that when he talks about truth, that that's head. When he talks about spirit, that's heart. I, think, I don't think that's getting the whole view, but it is absolutely in view. Okay, so I want to talk about that just briefly. The head means knowing truth matters. It matters. It's not just about feeling, right? Um, I want to read this from Pastor John Piper. He says, Christian worship engages both heart and head. It necessitates true doctrine about the Father and His Son and their partnership in rescuing sinners and due emotion about that doctrine. It's both an affair of the heart and an affair of the mind. Piper sums it up by saying, strong affections for God rooted in truth. What is worship? Strong affections for God rooted in truth. He goes on to say, worship must be vital and real in the heart. And worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full or half full, he says, of artificial admirers. And I'll say that again. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy. You've got people sitting in a church that are artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces an empty frenzy. And it cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rig rigorous thought. They refuse the truths of Scripture. But true worship comes from a people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. So in that, he says, listen, you got just truth, you get a bunch of artificial admirers. They're not changed. You got just emotion, you get shallow frenzy, people who don't know who they're actually worshiping. They end up singing songs that don't affirm the truth of God. They end up having doctrines that, that feel right to them instead of what is right in the Bible. They end up creating for themselves a God in their own image rather than being conformed to the image of our God, Jesus Christ. So it matters. If our worship isn't filled with and anchored in truth, which is God's word, then we are in danger of drifting, creating a God in our own image, conforming him into our preferences rather than being transformed into his. This is why truth matters. This is why here at The Journey, we try to place a high value on knowledge and truth in our worship services. We hope that it spills over into all of our life. That's why we want to choose songs that are full of doctrinally rich truth. We want to, that's why we preach a little bit longer sermons. We believe that truth matters. We believe that it absolutely should be what informs our worship. We believe that somebody should come into our church. We don't do our services for the unbeliever, but when somebody comes into our church, there should be no question who we're worshiping. There should be no question how they should be saved. It should not be vague spirituality and vague emotion. It might be powerful. It might cause tears, but if they don't know who, they don't know how, it does them no good. We want to have truth-saturated worship services. It is truth that stirs us, not emotion. The emotion comes from the truth that we are rejoicing in. So some of you need to value truth more in your worship. 
You need to have that as a value. When you're picking songs or asking us to sing songs, you need to know that, man, truth has to matter. But on the other side of that, truth demands a response of affection and emotion. So some of you need to give the Spirit access to your emotions. Some of you need to value truth a little bit more. You love worship. You love those songs. You'll listen to any song that's good and moves you. You love it. It's good. But you need to have songs that are full of truth, that are forming a right view, right understanding, a right understanding and knowledge of who this God that you're worshiping is. Some of you need to have that value. But a lot of you, I, this is objective truth. A lot of you need to give the Spirit access to the rest of your being. You need to let your emotions be affected. Right? So I want to give you just a few examples as we wrap up here of worship in the Scripture. And I'm, I'm, in particular, I've chosen these ones that are more expressive. I'm not saying expressive worship, hands held high. I'm not saying that's better than. I, there, is, there is absolutely a balance. It's what the whole thing we've been talking about. It's truth and spirit. Right? It's head and heart. But I want you to hear from God's Word. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, uh, Paul says, Hey, I want a church that's full of, of men praying. Right? Not that women aren't to be praying, but he's calling out the men who are a little bit more stoic, a little bit more non-emotional, a little bit more reserved. A church full of men that are praying and lifting holy hands. Instead of coming here worried about angering and quarreling, lift your hands in worship. You, if you're really worried about who God is, your hands will fly up in worship instead of your mouth opening up in anger and in quarreling. Uh, Psalm 149 and 150 both compel us to dance. I don't know exactly what to do with that one. Not good at dancing. Um, the Bible also values order. So we can't have, you know, you, I don't know if you've seen those clips on YouTube of people just like running laps on the stage and like throwing their jacket. I'm just like, we ain't doing that, right? The Bible values order. However, we're told, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. When you're together, sing, rejoice. Let Israel be glad at who their God is. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make melody with him or to him with tambourine and with a lyre. Why? Verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people and he adorns the humble with salvation. David, there's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where the ark is being brought in um, uh, in the ceremonial deal. The ark is, is God's presence. It's the center of the worship. And David goes out, and as it's being brought to its place where Israel will come and worship, David goes out and dances his way in with the ark. Uh, and it causes a marital strife later, because he's out there basically acting a fool. He's supposed to be the dignified king in all of his robes and all of his you know, pomp and circumstance, and he's out there dancing in just a simple ephod, which is just a simple robe, and, and some people said he's out there without a shirt and his underwear. That's not true. He's in a robe, but he's not in the normal, you know, kingly attire that he would have. He's out there dancing, and they bring in the ark with shouting and with the sound of a horn. It is a party. It is a celebrate. Like, it is a, it is a victory celebration that they have here. He comes home, he's ready to bless his family. His wife goes, well, didn't you show yourself today? She literally says, oh, the king really honored himself today. And, she's, and he's like, what are you talking about? That wasn't about me. 
wasn't about me. I honored, I, I humbled myself before the king. Read the story, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6. He goes, that was before the Lord. I wasn't out there worried about, because she's like, oh, all them girls saw you, and they're all thinking. He's like, those girls? Who gives a mess about those girls? I was out there dancing before the Lord. See, she's going, you need to worry about your reputation. It's about this form and this fit. And he's going, well, it is not. He goes, I'll become even more undignified than this, and you ain't going to like it, but I'm giving my life to the Lord. It's an amazing display of public adoration where David says, it's not about me. I'm going to celebrate the Lord. So we all want to have great worship experiences, don't we? It's not wrong. D.A. Carson in his book, Worship by the Book, he said, you can't find excellent worship until you stop looking for excellent worship. If you're coming in expecting a church to check all your boxes and to lead you to the throne in some perfectly truth-filled and emotionally stirring way, you're going to be disappointed all day long. And frankly, you're going to go from church to church. Is that not true? If you're expecting a church to perfectly scratch all your itches and lead you into the perfect worship state, you won't be here long. This is the kind of posture that leads people to go from church to church. The overall issue isn't with the service. That stuff matters. I just spent a lot of time arguing for that. But the problem during worship likely isn't the band, the song selection, or the volume. It probably has much to do, more to do with the rest of your life. Have you cracked the Bible the rest of the week? Have you spent any time with Jesus in prayer? Do you see... Yes, sing songs, but it let it change your life. It starts with a relationship through the week, Bible reading and prayer. That equals rich and good worship. Because if your focus is on the form, the volume, the song selection, the style, you will be frustrated. You will. But imagine if we're a people of God who have spent our weeks pouring out our lives in worship. The way that Romans 12 says. We've poured out our lives. We've given ourselves to Jesus and his kingdom and therefore to the people that Jesus loves. We've poured out ourselves in worship throughout the week. When we get into here, it will matter far less what songs we're singing, who's singing them, what level we're singing them at. And it will matter that we have been pursuing God and we get to gather with his people and exalt his name. And we'll be able to rejoice if it's a single piano in a small country church singing hymns. Or we'll be able to rejoice if they got fog machines and lights. If Jesus' name is being exalted, his people will be able to worship in spirit and in truth. So let's examine our hearts today. Let's offer up the truth of ourselves in response to the truth of who he is. And let's take advantage, church, of the beautiful truth that we get to worship in spirit, that the spirit has indwelled us, that we are the temple of God, that he has awakened in us the spiritual about, or the spiritual part of who we are, and we get to worship in that. Let's pray. Jesus.
forgive us for all the things that we've made worship about that aren't you. And would you send your spirit to just expose us, the truth about us, but most of all, Lord, would you shine your bright, glorious light on the truth of who you are, that it's in the light of your love and in your glory that we are transformed into a people of true worship. So would you do that this morning? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Hey, guys, the altar's open. We're going to sing a final.